Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on LitHub Radio, episode 189, The Low Desert. In light of our very own Todd Goldberg publishing his latest short story collection, The Low Desert, we thought we'd do a very writerly episode and go behind <laughs> the scenes of a single short story, exploring the process from conception through writing, editing, and publication. Today, it's Anatomy of the Low Desert. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I'm actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hi. Feeling I guess Todd's nervous. not going to say much. <laughs> oh, my God. He's, he's at a loss for words in the he's first time. Feeling he's a little... in 189 episodes. <laughs> feeling a it. little nervous. Feeling <laughs> a little... Feeling a yeah. little sick uh, and a little uh, nervous. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like George Saunders must have felt when he walked into this lion's den. Or like Will, when Will comes. <laughs> wow. uh, this is cool. Uh, this is super exciting for me um, because uh, we've never done this before. No, and, you have avoided um, attention. Despite I appearances. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it always feels a little weird to talk about your own work on your own show. But, like you guys said, hey, let's do this. And it seemed like a really cool idea. And because the book's getting good reviews, I felt comfortable doing it also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we were talking right before we started recording about, you know, our recent George Saunders episode. And just how, um, how fun it was to talk with somebody uh, about process and the writing process. And I feel like in a lot of ways, we kind of take that for granted. And, um, and you are a teacher. This Damn. is, this is, you have, I mean, besides being a writer for all of your life, you know, you, you've also built up an impressive teaching career. And so it seems like a waste to not have an opportunity to talk about your process. And like, you know, I, I'm fascinated too, because I mean, obviously I've written before, but I've never been published. I've never worked with an editor. Mm. Um, and I think I have like a sort of cheesy romantic idea of what that's like. <laughs> um, but I would love to hear, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I learned how to make films by being on set and then listening to DVD commentaries. Right. And I still love to listen to like the DGA, the Directors Guild of America has an amazing director's podcast. And like, I'm just always absorbing how people direct, how people screenwrite. And, um, and so I, you know, after our George Saunders episode, I'm just on this kick. I really, so I, I think it'd be great to, to hear about this, you know, well, and, and, and isolating it to one story in particular. Yeah. I'm really well, and, excited to get know, down to it. Similarly, like I love any sort of thing that goes and does a deep dive into anyone's creative process because right. like, and, and I don't just mean like people making art. Like if you're a plumber and you come to my house, like, oh, yeah. Prepared to do thirty minutes on. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah, your it's, job. it's geeking out, right? Like yeah. it's just geek. It's it's fun to geek out, and I, you know, I hope that as opposed to like, I mean, I, I imagine when you're doing a, a book tour, even a virtual one like you're doing right now, I mean, you're getting a lot of bullshit questions <laughs> or a lot of superficial, you know, and and your response, like people don't want to hear real answers, right? They don't want to hear about the nitty gritty. They want to hear about how uh, fun it was or, you know, it's, it's about, it's promotion, you know? Right. And I just, yeah. I think that like the purpose of our episode is clearly not promotion because our listeners know who you are. Right. They're either <laughs> already have bought your books or are going to buy your books or not, you know, they either love you as a critic and, and don't read your fiction or, you know, this is, I think this is just a good opportunity. For, uh, it's a safe space to like really go in. <laughs> like, I want to hear about how hard wow. it was, you know? 
I'm hoping to hear about like where you messed up, like where it went wrong or where it didn't, it took you someplace surprising. Like, I, I don't know. I, I hope you're willing to, to go. There. I, I am willing to go anywhere. And I have to tell you guys, this is, this is the truth. And I talked about this somewhere else recently, but doing this show, in addition to directing a graduate school in creative writing, um, puts a different kind of pressure on me as a writer than I had early on in my career. Mm. Um, because I, if I'm going to talk it, I got to walk it. And yeah. like, I, it, it would be really hard for me to continue to give really solid advice to my students that they believe in, um, or even to have the authority to write book criticism, you know, for, you know, major newspapers and stuff, or do this show. If my if my book sucked, you know, right. <laughs> like right. that would that would be hard. You don't want Ryder to go off on a rant about the state of America being reflected. No, no, and like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to have, um, you know. So when when I sit down to write, like I should, I should feel free, you know, like that's the ultimate mm-hmm. state. Like, oh, I'm just gonna freely sit down and and write great American prose, but I'm not so filled with hubris to say that. That is not some baggage that I pull behind me when I sit down sure. to work on a book. That the weight of my own authority, both real in the sense of, of the graduate school and perceived, as in my role on the show, <laughs> <laughs> um, when I when I write. So talking about this stuff is actually it's great fun for me, and uh, and I hope we can we can reveal some some of the secrets behind the uh, anxiety-inducing process of creating the short story that became the title story. And let's be honest, guys, the best book cover I've ever had. It's really beautiful. Oh my gosh, I have to send you a picture. Vega has been carrying around this book and it just like lives in her little toddler magpie (laughs) areas. And I'm like, Vega, you know, page three, somebody's like shot in the face in a lock, <laughs> a storage locker. But she thinks There's a it's head hers. in the trunk. Yeah, <laughs> that's hysterical. Yeah. Well, actually, that that is a, a a question I have. Like, did you pick the cover? Like, how did the cover get picked? I'm assuming that's something that's like, do you get multiple covers sent to you? Yeah. And get to choose and, or so I'll send you guys um, a stack of the covers after this, so you guys can see the ones I rejected. Um, so it's a big, long process, actually. So this is the third book that I've done with Counterpoint Press. And to be perfectly frank with you, I was not terribly satisfied with the covers for the first two books, Gangsterland and Gangster Nation. The publisher was happy and the marketing people were happy, but I didn't feel like it conveyed what I wanted the books to convey very well. And so when we started to do this book, I had a a candid conversation with my editor, Dan, um, and I was like, Look, I want a book cover that when you see it, you're like, oh, man, like, I know exactly what that book's about. Someone might get buried in the desert in that book, and they might have it coming. And he's like, all right, okay, I got it. I understand. And so then I sent him a bunch of comps of, like, other crime novels that I really loved. And, in fact, my covers in England um, and in Germany and places like that I've, I've, I've liked better. And I was like, they really, you know, they they really sell the concept uh, on the front cover. And he's like, I get it, I get it, I get it. And so they sent me like 10 cover comps. And um, all of them were, you know, really taken in my backyard. The The cover of this book is the desert that's behind my house. Cool. Um, so I can hold the book up to the mountains behind my house and line it up exactly. It's yeah, pretty I saw amazing. you do that on Twitter. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um 
and so when I saw this particular book cover, I was like, that's it. That's the one. Um, and so listeners, you can go and you can look at it. But, you know, they've dropped the words, the low desert actually into the desert. Mm-hmm. And it's a there's no there's no people in it. Um, and it's a you know, it's a barren landscape. But you get the sense of there's no people in it because they're they're underneath the word desert. <laughs> you know, like you really get a strong sense of it. And I just loved it. And I, I knew that it was going to convey exactly what I wanted because I also knew that this was going to be a book largely based on place. That the mm-hmm. the the interconnection between the short stories has primarily to do with the kind of people who come to the desert. Um, and not just Palm Springs, but deserts in general. I think a different kind of pe- person goes there. And the title, The Low Desert, um, The Low Desert is the name of this, you know, it's the colloquial name of this desert. Uh, it's the Low Elevation Desert. But also just, those are like three cool words together. Yeah. The Low Desert. Definitely. Like yeah. it evokes something. And I would wanted to use that title for something for years and years and years. And then when I finally sat down to write the story we're going to talk about, The Low Desert, um, it ended up being the, the perfect story to use for that title. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I think presentation is so important, especially like, you know, the way that this book, because, I mean, I, I just as an example, like I remember I, so I tend to listen to crime stuff more than buy it and read it for whatever reason. It's like the, that's what, my audiobook obsession is the Harry Bosch novels. Right. And I've listened to all of them. And I'd listened to like maybe five of them uh, just on audiobook and then decided to uh, buy one for uh, my father-in-law because I figured he would like it, you know. And when I uh, bought my first Harry Bosch book, I was like, just the presentation alone, I was like, oh, it looks like a crappy airport book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, suddenly I was like, oh, right. Like, there's a way in which the cover conveys this is like all those other books you've read. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and and I was dis- disheartened by that because I felt like Michael Connolly was writing really good fiction. <laughs> like, but there was something about the packaging that made it feel like a dime a dozen, or you know, it's just that like paperback cheap. And like, obviously, that works on some on some level to sell books, right? Because people do buy books based on like, oh, it looks like the same, you know, like the Stephen King book that I already read. So that it, you know, it has to have that same look. Um, but on the flip side of that is that it, 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 it might not be taken as seriously, right? Or like that it could be reduced to a sort of airport read. Yeah, or... I mean, you know, with the Connolly books, I mean, you know, he's written 27 Bosch novels, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of it, for sure, when you're writing series fiction is that you're selling the franchise with every book yeah. cover. You, you're, right. you're not selling the story. Um, right. because the story is Harry Bosch. And so when you pick, when a new Conley novel comes out, his name is gigantic. It, right. It's more important. It covers than half the cover. Book. Yeah. Right. The title of the book is small and there's the skyline of LA in the background. Yep. You know, that, like, that's, that's, that. all you that's all you need. That's all you need. Yeah. yeah. It, it, all you need is the title to understand that this is a new episode, basically. Right. It, right. Because he's, he's going to sell 26 million copies anyway. Um, I mean, but it, it seems it seems conscious on your part then that the low desert, even though it's clearly connected to the, the your your last two novels, it's not it's not uh, associated in the same way as that. It's not like considered a series, even just the presentation. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean it it I mean it's part of the series, but you don't need to have read the other books to enjoy these stories. I mean, if you've read the other books, it, there's some shocking things that happen in the book. 
but they'll be shocking regardless. Are there con- there are connections of character names and stuff like tossed off character names that if yeah. you read the books you're like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I, there, there's little Easter eggs and all throughout all the stories in there, and yeah. then, you know some some of the stories tied directly into the larger plot of the Gangsterland books, but you don't need to have read the books to for the stories to matter. If you read the books, the stories really matter. Um, and that was, I, I have to be honest with you guys, like that was the really hard part of writing a book of connected stories that also connect to a larger universe that I've created because I've never read a book that does that. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, I got to make it stand alone and I need to make it connect intricately mm-hmm. to the 1,000 pages that already exist <laughs> about some of these characters. Um And that presented a a unique series of challenges. And, you know, even putting the order of the stories together, there's a great essay a a writer named um, David Joust wrote many years ago about sort of the philosophy of how to put short story collections together. And he called it stacking stones. Mm -hmm. And I've always kept that in my mind because really when you're putting a short story collection together that's not interconnected, it is like stacking stones. Like, okay, you're going to stick this here. You're going to shove it in. You're going to hope it sticks. You're going to put this other one on top of it. It's going to look weird, but inexplicably, gravity and grooves have made them stay together. So there was some of that involved in the putting together of the 12 stories in the book, the stacking stone method. But then because the stories are interconnected, like there, there's, I won't reveal it here, but there's a story in the book that pays off a larger story that exists in the book that is shocking. And if you read the book out of order, that shocking thing is not going to be as shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to really place that story in the right spot in this book to pay off this larger emotion and make it feel like a novel in that way. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. I was delighted to read the copy on the inner front cover of the Gangsterland universe. Like, you're rivaling Marvel here. You're creating <laughs> whole worlds. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering, to transition into this story, like, in w- at what point did you start this story? You know, had other stories been written? Was this one of your Keystone stories that came first? Um, Where did this one come from? So this story, The Low Desert, um, has been in my head for... 20 years and I haven't written it. I didn't feel like I was ready to write it yet. And it comes from a couple of other stories. There's a short story in this book called the salt. And there's another short story in this book called the last good man that also featured this character, Morris drew. Um, but in fact, I wrote Morris drew for the first time in a book in living dead girl, which came out in 2002. He's the sheriff in my novel living dead girl. Um, so I've been writing about this character for a really long time with the intention of having him be a lawman, essentially, at the Salton Sea in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Um, but I, not unlike when I was writing Gangsterland, I didn't have the information yet to write it. Like, in order to write Gangsterland, I didn't know enough about Judaism to write about it. Like, I had to spend some time reading the Talmud and the Midrash and, you know, all this Jewish eschatology and all this, like I have these shelves of, of, of Jewish books over here and then really getting in touch with my 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 desire to eat corned beef on a more regular <laughs> basis. Um, so, you know, I needed to understand the history of the Salton Sea, the role that organized crime had played in the development of the Salton Sea, all these things before I felt really comfortable 
to write this story. So when we sold the idea of a short story collection to my publisher, um, and I'll, let me back up and say, the reason that we did a short story collection initially uh, is twofold. Uh, the first is that I was really burnt out of writing novels. You know, as you guys know, I wrote three novels back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And all of them were over, in like in my computer, all of them were over 450 pages long. And you seemed at the end of your rope. Yeah, I, I really <laughs> the was. the end of each novel. Yeah, I mean, they're really long books. They're intricately plotted. You got to live in the head of bad people. You know, it's it's uh, it's challenging um, to say the least, and it's also sort of physically daunting. Like it's a lot of just sitting around, mm-hmm. and I needed time to recharge mentally and go plus out. Plus, you're running a program. Plus, I'm running a program, <laughs> and you know, just being a, a friend and a husband and a brother, and you know, all podcaster, <laughs> podcaster. Um, <laughs> but I just I I was not ready to dive into another 450 page novel. Just like the yeah. thought of it made me filled with anxiety. And I was beginning to um, not enjoy writing Rabbi David Cohen, Sal Cupertine, because the idea of it was bothering me. And you don't ever want to start writing a book where you are regretful of your profound success. Like, it's a a stupid thing. But so to be clear, there was pressure to produce another book. Oh, yeah. I've already been paid for it. Right. (laughs) But pref- oh, I see. So you were under contract to produce a a third book in a series, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I've already oh, been paid for that book. I just have to write it now. Gotcha. Um, so there's that. But I have a very understanding uh, publisher. So that was one side. I was like, I was like, oh, I want to take a little bit of time and work on these stories. And the other side, um, and you guys know this, um, the listeners probably have heard me mention it obliquely, uh, is that I sold the the TV rights to Gangster Land and Gangster Nation and some associated short stories uh, to Amazon for a TV series. Um, and so as I was working on the show with, with Amazon, I also had the realization that, um, man, I could use some more story. Um, yeah. I could use some, some B stories that I can use to help build out this world longer than just the length of what two seasons would be based on the two books that I have before the third book is written and comes out. And so I started thinking about how to connect some a couple older short stories that were loosely based in the same universe and then write a bunch of new ones and see how it went. So all of that was in my head. And I knew that I wanted to write this story about this low desert character, Morris Drew. Um, I didn't know how he connected to the larger gangster universe other than in my mind, he is the uncle of a character in Gangster Land and Gangster Nation. An FBI agent named Matthew Drew, um, which I had established in the books. Um, And then I realized, well, I don't actually need to connect this that clearly to the gangster universe. I'm just going to write some more gangster shit at the Salton Sea and make it an entirely different franchise idea. And so The Low Desert was the first short story I wrote for this book. Oh, great. Um, Oh, wow. To see if I could capture the voice that I wanted, mm-hmm. if I could create sort of a, a lasting mood for the book, and if I could write a story for the first time in a really long time that didn't have any jokes in it, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is hard for me. 
Mm. And yeah, this story is, I wouldn't call it hilarious. Yeah, there's there's not a lot Jesus, of funnies. No. no. There's, <laughs> there's not, I didn't get with the funnies in this one. No. Um, so it was a real challenge to, to do this story and to tie in some stuff that was in these other short stories as well. Uh, so it's a very long answer, I, I recognize, to a short question, which is it was the first story I wrote for the book. And then it was also a tone setter for some of the other kinds of stories I was going to write. Um, where I'm looking at essentially the aftermath of organized crime mm-hmm. versus the action of organized crime, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's a really cool way to put it. Yeah, um, I mean, that was, I, I think you can do that in a short story. You can't do that in a novel. And so I, I got to exercise the thing that I'm interested in doing that I, I really cannot do in a commercial crime fiction novel. Right. So let's uh, let's summarize the story. Um it's uh, so he, he Morris is working as a he's not officially a cop, right? He's actually a private private security guard for a develop or an oil company, uh, Claxon Oil, and uh, it, the story opens on a morning where he is woken up by an associate and taken out to the Salton Sea, which is this crazy, real. Uh, feature of the landscape out in the desert uh and uh and they find a body uh and um it's a a child's body um this is really disturbing (laughs) it's so funny you know because you 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 are such a funny person and so i've only read the first two stories in the book so far (laughs) The the first story is nuts the, the first, first story, <laughs> but the first story I love because it was reading it. I was like, "This is like Todd to the yep. most." Todd. It is. It is it so is. fun. God, it is it so is. fun having having known you for so long, but actually having not read much of your work lately. Like when you know when I met you, you were my teacher, my creative writing teacher, and that was the era when you were writing um, the book that I read. Your first book that I read was your short story collection, Simplified, right. which yep. is a very different tone in mm-hmm. a lot of ways in retrospect you were experimenting with a whole slew of tones yeah. you were writing some crime stuff some like more experimental stuff some sort of surreal magical realist yep. stuff you were kind of all over the place and i remember loving that collection and, and loving you know your your ability to write all these different types of stories but reading this now i, I it's like that first story especially is like distilled todd yeah. You know, yeah, it's like it's like I hear the funny, the funny, funny Todd that I've you know been having you know drinks with until three in the morning at Bennington, uh, and your wit and 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 the humor, and then to go to the low desert, it's like a complete one eighty in terms of tone, um, and you know you 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 just establish that right off the bat um, with with a dead child, um, but what's interesting to me is that in both cases there's such darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and your ability in the one to make it funny, uh, where you know you you have a decapitated head in a trunk, and, <laughs> and a and a murder clown, <laughs> which is it, it is I, I when I got to that you know when I realized when he talks about like hacking the guy's head off with an uh, an axe I was like oh my oh god like it really is like because I guess in my mind when I think of crime fiction oftentimes it's I'm thinking of like cops or right. yeah. like a, a sort thriller, of like vague but... missing child or a thriller but you actually go pretty gruesome. Yeah. Um, in both of these stories, both of the stories that I read, and in one you go gruesome with this incredibly over-the-top humor that is so fun and like it's still believable, but it's like that. It's it, there's an irreverence to it. 
that 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 is 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 still shocking and still kind of like it doesn't make it any less real but it makes it sort of uh uh it, it's detached by its humor yeah whereas it, in, in the low desert away, it's 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 a standard deviation away from reality right basically. whereas in the low desert you have a, a, a again a very gruesome situation um without the humor and, right. and where darkness becomes sort of a character's avoidance, I mm-hmm. guess, or like, it's almost like the horrors of this dead child are like too hot for the story to touch in yeah. a weird way. Um, but in both cases, the engine is death, dismemberment, uh, you know, like really dark shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I guess like looking at the two stories that I've read so far, I'm curious, like what comes first? Is it the crime? Is it the darkness? Mm, and then tone. is it responding to it? Or is it the tone that comes first? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the voice or the the person that's confronting it? It's, well, it's always the character comes first. Character. Um, so in the first short story that you talked about, which is called The Royal Californian, um, I'd had an idea for years about a guy who sings Brick by Ben Folds Five at karaoke. Right. Like, like, what kind of guy would sing Brick by Ben Folds 5 at karaoke? And I couldn't figure it out for years and years and years. And then one day... It's so funny because it's such a tossed off line. It, it is. It's like, it's, like, it's like three sentences, but it's so memorable to me. I was like, that yeah. is the most Todd thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, that he has a hustle where he makes... He baits people a bet that he can make them cry and then sings Brick by karaoke and it always works. And like, I just, and I was like, that is only Todd could think of that shit. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, on, that's pretty dark. Like I, I recognize that that's a pretty dark thought that I had of, you know, a guy like that's his, that's one of his hustles is singing Brick at karaoke. And so, you know, in that story, it's the character and what kind of guy is that guy. And then, you know, the branches just start going out. Yeah. I know that I'm writing a crime story. So what's this guy involved in? What's this guy's, you know, larger grift that he's that he's with, and we won't spoil that one because there's too many surprises in that in that story. Um, but in this case, you know, I, I start with this character of Morris Drew, and I didn't know actually his entire backstory until I started to write this story. I'd written the short story The Salt, um, and that had actually appeared in a, a a fairly different version in my book Other Resort Cities, and I'd written uh, that other short short story The Last Good Man. And he had appeared in the other book, but I didn't fully grasp who he was. I knew that he had been tortured by something that had happened to him in his past. I didn't know what it was. And so as I was writing this story, I was like, okay, if this guy's doing private security for an oil company, why is he there? Well, maybe he was a cop somewhere else. Okay, so he was a cop somewhere else. He found someone and that person, or he solved a crime and that the, the crime involved a rich person. The rich person hired him to do do him a favor. Like these are the things that like mm. that showed up in my head like in five seconds, right? Okay, yeah. That's a that's a an easy sort of noir setup for this character, um, and that's in fact the truth. So Morris had been um, a small town sheriff in Granite City, Washington, which is based on Loon Lake, Washington, a place I used to go fishing every year when I was a kid, um, and in the backstory. Uh, George Claxon, the namesake of the oil company that he works for, his daughter goes missing. Morris finds the daughter and the killer. And then... Is, and is that Living Dead Girl? No, that's just in the short story. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, he finds the missing girl and her killer, and he nearly kills the killer. He beats him to death with the intention to kill him. And he, he just, knew him. 
and he knew him. They'd gone to high yeah. school together. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and so I had that. So I built in that backstory, but that wasn't enough. And I was like, who was this guy? Like, if he's 30 years old in 1962, that means he fought in Korea. Mm-hmm. And so then I spent like like a month reading about <laughs> dudes who fought in Korea. Because Korea is a forgotten war for mm-hmm. a lot of us. And for the kids listening to the show that are, you know, 15, 16 years old, Korea was a war that we fought. <laughs> <laughs> And the standard operating procedure in Korea was to kill everybody. That was it. Kill everybody. And the dudes that came back from Korea ended up also being the guys who ended up going into Vietnam as advisors in the 1960s. Um, And so you get this transition of these guys that have been conditioned to kill, who then get sent into Vietnam as advisors, and then end up being you know, top military commanders in Vietnam during the bloodiest war where, you know, all kinds of horrible human rights violations happen. Yeah, it also, Korea also as a war just doesn't, you know, it as a, it has the, the it's one of the first, re, I mean, there's obviously always moral complexity, but as far as like the historical assessment, it was one of the first wars where I think a, 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 a majority of Americans came back questioning whether we did the right thing or whether we should have right. been there in the first place, yeah. which, exactly. be, you know, has now become sort of standard, you know, that is the sort of standard assessment. of. But you coming out of World War II, I think that there was this real sense of like, you did awful things, but you were still doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, you're, and you're I doing think, it for, a, for a, a higher calling. And that right. was not the case in Korea, Korea now for no. these guys coming back. And so I was like, all right, fuck yeah, I found it. I'm going to give this guy this backstory of being a rifleman in Korea, which yeah. means he killed men, women, and children. And, you know, how does that affect him as as a human being in this life as a lawman? Um, and so all of that is before I sit down to type the words. Mm-hmm. Like, that all happens before I'm even there. And then, you know, immediately on the in the first line, he's woken up by a guy pounding on his door and so, so here's a, your little behind the music. I'm sitting at my desk, and I was like, well, what's that guy's name that's pounding on his door? And I <laughs> click over onto Facebook, and my friend Jim Connolly had just left a comment on my Facebook page about some replacement song. And I was like, Jim Connolly is a solid name. <laughs> You're in, Jim. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, oh, yeah. Jim love, wins. Love that song. Also, by the way. I'm making you into a character in this short story right now. And he was like, That's so oh, fun. Okay, cool. And so now there he is forever, Jim Connolly knocking oh, on the front man. door. <laughs> but so so did you actually I mean, I understand that you have this backstory and and you had a, I'm assuming the initial crime, like the, the dead body. Yeah. Do you plot it out? Do you write an outline? Do you say no. like, oh, and then this happened this or no, you just kind of follow the voice while writing it. And is yeah. that true with your novels too? Well, I, I don't do a traditional outline where, you know, it's pages and pages or a whiteboard or anything. I, you know, I right. keep I keep notes in um, in a little notepad on my desk mm-hmm. where I'm writing stuff down. Um, but in this case, I knew what the arc of the story was going to be. And, you know, we can we can talk about what what happens in the story. There's not it won't change the world to, to reveal what happens. Um, so I knew like that we're going to find this dead body. And what this dead body is going to reveal is that there is something larger afoot happening yeah. at the Salton Sea. And that Greater our main corruption. character, yeah, corruption, organized crime, and that, and our, that our main, main character, Morris Drew, is already is kind of compromised just yeah. by being an employee of this company. Just right. exactly. <laughs> that he's right. in the middle of a con and he didn't even right. know it. Hmm. Um, 
And so, like, I knew that's what the story was going to be about. But there, there was a moment when I was writing a conversation between two characters when I really had an epiphany that what I was writing about was something larger. So the, the, the dead child um, is supposed to be the son of the vice president of the company. And there's a scene where Morris goes and talks to this guy. His name is Woodrow East, which is a stupid name. Um, <laughs> Why? But I love I love the detail of like you know he wants you he asks you to call him Woody but doesn't really mean it. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's like it's a great character description. I, I wanted that line, and so I had to yeah. give him the name Woodrow. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't think of his last name, and so literally I was sitting here at my desk looking around, and I saw the word East, and I was like, oh, East. <laughs> um, I love it. So he has this conversation with with Woodrow East about, you know, what's going on. And Woodrow says to him, you know, I'm in essentially he says I'm in bad with some terrible people. You know, you don't understand these kinds of people. And Morris responds, I am those kinds of people. And when he says that, I was like, oh, I got to go back and rewrite this. And so it's at that point, which is two thirds of the way through the story. I went back and I had to rewrite some of the things that I'd already written because I finally understood who he was. Like, he's a guy who understands he's done really bad things. Yeah. Mm. And and I'll, actually, I'll have to tell you guys, do you remember several years ago, we read an essay called The Real Muslims of Irving, Texas? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that was written by Colby Bazell. Um, who was who fought in Iraq? He had been a sniper, or not a sniper, a rifleman in Iraq, uh, and he had been one of my students as well. And I just remember we were having a real candid conversation one day at residency, which you know happens because there's alcohol and sunshine. And I said to him, um, "Did a, did a, Iraq make you worse, or did it bring out a thing that was already inside of you?" And he said. It was a thing that was already inside of me that I knew was inside of me. I wanted yeah. to go there. I wanted oh. to go. And I was like, ooh, like that's the kind of guy that I, I should be writing about. Yeah. A guy who recognizes that he had that impulse to kill. Right. Um, and so that recognition in that moment when he says, I am, I am those kinds of people, made me go back and realize like that's really what I'm trying to write about. And so I had to go back and revamp everything I'd, I'd done up to that point. Hmm. Which is such an interesting way to sort of get to, and, and and it's a it's a fresh way to get to what still anchors so much of good crime fiction, which is an archetypal lawman or law person, mm-hmm. right? Who is willing to do the things that other people aren't aren't willing to do, but right. for good, right? Like that sort of that 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 is a crime archetype that is so great like you just love you can't help but be like yeah i it's dark and it's disturbing but this person is hopefully doing it for the right reasons or you know willing to do this off yeah yeah i mean and that sort of moral complexity is difficult particularly in these times because you find a crooked cop breaking the rules and you're like oh he's probably also arresting black people (laughs) you know and because every sort of detective novel or a private detective novel or story like this is also about the ineffectiveness of police. Yeah, right. It's about corruption. police corruption in a right. way. And to toe that line is a really hard thing to do and, and not make a polemic, essentially, in your work. 
And in this story, he's, you know, this is a really interesting story, Todd, because all he's trying to do is beyond the bare minimum, which is identify (laughs) this body. Right. That's it. That's the thrust of the story is who is this kid and let's just get a name on him. And it doesn't, spoiler alert, he doesn't really find out. I mean, he gets a much larger picture, which we can go into, but, you know, it's just so fucking depressing. (laughs) It's just (laughs) like, well, we're going to, like, some people know who this kid is, but nobody's ever going to find out what happened here. And that's how we just become completely complicit in violence. That's that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, it, it is super depressing. I agree. Um, but in this region, in the 1950s and the 1960s, um, as they were building the Salton Sea, shit like this happened. You know, because organized crime was complicit in the, in the development of a con, which was that you could build an inland Riviera on an on a ancient salt plain <laughs> filled with, with chemical runoff, um, people died. People were killed. People were dumped in the Salton Sea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, w- before we were on the show, we were talking about um, people's knowledge of World War II. The Salton Sea had been used as a bombing training ground for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They practiced <laughs> dropping the nuclear bomb using the Salton Sea. And the desert and the mountains around it, because they, you know, that's just what they used. And so there's all these exploded ordinances throughout this area too. All these native people. So the area is, is a um, is filled with Native Americans, the Anza Borrega tribes, the Kuwia, the Cabazon Indians. All of them had, um, you know, settlements out there essentially. Um, and the government, you know, as usual, did terrible things to them. Um, but like the the notion that a dead body could come up in the Salton Sea and people couldn't identify it and they'd just say, "Ah, oh, fuck it," that, like if particularly mm-hmm. if it was a Mexican person mm-hmm. or an Indian, it happened over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah, and there's a in the story there's the specter of this race that is happening, this sort of like raw raw klaxon oil thing that's you know this big race that everyone thinks is a bad idea, but that pressure to you know, allow the show to go on is like constantly mm-hmm. going, you know, that that's mm-hmm. happening. It's really good, Todd. It's really, it, it, it feels very American in all the, <laughs> the, the, the awful ways. So I'm curious how the story changed, if it did at all from, so when you wrote it, did you send it to somebody immediately? Did, uh, like, did you send this to your publisher and say, I want to do a whole series based on, you know, or I want to create a series of stories like this one, and you had to get the thumbs up there at that point no, to keep writing? Or? No. Well, two things happened. The first thing is that I got to the point in the story where he says, I am those kinds of people. And I realized, oh, I've got a TV show here. I, I could write a limited series about this character. And so the first call I made was to my film and television agent. And I said, I'm writing a short story right now. I'm not all the way done. I know how it's going to end. And I think you could sell it for a TV show. And I was like, but let me get to the end. Let me tell you the general premise. And she was like, speak to no one else of this story. Don't tell anyone about this short story. Um, so she had been my first call. And I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write the story 
I'd already planned to write the story in a slightly different style than I've been writing in the past. And when you look at the book, it is in a, a slightly different style. Um, and I said, I'm going to write it in a way that makes it um, so that you can actually see how adaptable it is. Like this, this, this short story is going to read like a one hour pilot for a television show. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay. And then I called Dan, my publisher, and um, or my, my editor at my publisher. And when I was done with the story and I was like, Dan, I think I got the title story. And he's like, you haven't even written the book yet. And I was like, yeah, but I think this is the title story. And he mm-hmm. said, okay, well, send it over. Let me look at it. And he looked at it and he's like, this is great. Yeah, I mean, more things like this. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. keep, keep doing this. And I was like, well, I'm going to do some funny stuff and some weird stuff too. But I said, you know, the title works really well. And I think tonally, you know, start thinking about this in terms of how we can market this book and, you know, where I'm going with it. Um, and so he was very, very supportive. And this is sort of the unique thing is, you know, when you're writing a short story collection and you're under contract, it's not like um, when you're sort of just writing short stories and sending them out to Glimmer Train or whatever, and then you you find 10 of them and put them into a book. Mm. You know, this was this was a, you know, a larger notion of how we we're going to write this book that, that my editor and I had together. So there's... As I mentioned earlier, there's there's three short stories involving um, one character, uh, this cocktail waitress named Tanya. And um, my editor was like, we need a, a, a concluding story that, that solves something here, which I won't bring up because it will ruin the book. And um, And then I sort of gave him some ideas of things I wanted to do. And none of them were really resonating with him. And then one day I just got a wild hair and I wrote the story. And he was like, oh, shit. Like, you you, you fucked it up, man. People are going to be stunned. And, and I was like, I was like, okay, well, good. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, you you took you took this book to a different place. Um, so that's... See, I, I think that's so fascinating to me. I think that that's... It, it's, it's so cool that the best... I, I think that the best writing is that you write yourself into a corner mm-hmm. and then you write your way out of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like that you, that you didn't have that, that, that twist or that, you know, satisfying completely right. like key falling into the lock thing and then go backwards that you really did. And I, and I don't think everybody can do that. Like I don't, I, I don't recommend that writers try to start with that, you know, that process in mind because I think it's very difficult, but yeah. the, the fact is you were able to pull it off in this case, which is so cool. And it's, I, yeah, it's yeah, more like it's... taking things all the way. Like if we're going to yeah. go this far, let's go all the way. Well, yeah. and, and that's the freedom that my editor gives me. And this is true for the low desert specifically. He's like, look, you're, you've written a short story that in the first three pages has a dead five-year-old mm-hmm. who's yeah. been drowned in the Salton sea. He's like, you know, if you're going to do this, like there's a real squee factor in this book because he's like, you know, he's pulling his skin around and yeah. looking to see what happened to him and you know the there's the moral questions are pretty significant. He's like if you're going to if you're going to write this kind of story, the emotions have to be huge and the payoff has to be profound. The mm-hmm. reader has to hit that last page and just think like holy shit. Like I've been I've been hit over the head with something. I don't know if that happens necessarily. I hope it does. Um, but I couldn't hold myself back. You know, if, if I was worried about the reactions of people, then I couldn't write this story. And, um, 
And so I just kept, with all these stories, I just kept saying, I'm going to take this one step beyond where the reader thinks, constantly. One step beyond, one step beyond, one step beyond. I'm going to write that thing that you don't expect. And sometimes that thing is an emotion. Sometimes that thing is an image. Sometimes that thing is a joke. Um, <laughs> You know, sometimes the thing is he's he's a guy who sings Brickett karaoke. Like that's fucking <laughs> nuts. But in the story, it's the least nuts thing. Yeah, like that that becomes like the, his humanizing quality <laughs> is that he sings Brickett karaoke. Um, but for the low desert, you know, having that freedom to to push some some boundaries of crime fiction also, and not solve the crime. Uh, spoiler: I don't solve the crime. Um, like, that was hard because, like, as the three of us have discussed, at the end of that first Tana French novel where they don't solve the crime and you're like, You're pissed. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the killer? It's different in a short story. Yeah. But it's because it because hopefully what happens is you get to the end of the short story and it doesn't matter who did it. It doesn't matter who the kid is. What matters is you are empathizing with the main character who has found himself in a situation beyond his control yeah right yeah yeah i feel like short stories it's a different it's just a different expect if if you had solved the crime in a short story that would seem strange to me you know yeah. like and this is who it was the end <laughs> well, like, yeah, wow that I... was a great 20 minutes like <laughs> <what a> <laughs> strange <laughs> journey but i do think a lot of a lot of crime fiction does do that right i mean because that is it it that's the tension with something that that has a kind of a built-in genre expectation right it's like right. when it's yeah. when it's too convenient it's too convenient <laughs> but it also has to not just be a complete uh you know there has to be some resolution there has to be some story but you also don't want it to be too, too unbelievable you know right. you don't want it to be like and i'm gonna be the superhero cop who solves <laughs> everything because who cares you know then it's just a, a comic book for you know, kids. Yeah, but there's to... there's plenty of crime short stories that solve the crime. You know, that's what Alfred sure. Hitchcock presents and Ellery Queen do. You know, sure. they they publish yeah. thirty page short stories where a cop solves a crime. Um, I guess, but that's I... not the kind of stories that I write. Yeah, the conclusion here is like, you know, everything's fucked. You know, <laughs> so yeah. I want. We've talked a lot about more macro things like plot and character, but. I would love to hear you talk about some more of the detail work and fine tuning. Like there's this one detail that I'm going to remember forever where Morris picks up a book. He's searching for the mother of this kid who's obviously also dead somewhere. Um, and he picks up a book as a clue or evidence or whatever. And then he takes it home. And then when he comes home um, at the end of this horrible day, his wife is reading it. And that is so dark and like a sticky like I, I don't have a good word for it like that is just burrowed into my mind as this <laughs> ominous detail so at what point like well first of all you know are you folding those details in just as you go or some of those things be sharpening with editing or with rewrites you know I'm just very curious about that kind of thing yeah, it's, it's Hawaii by James Michener. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about that choice. I'm so curious about that choice. Um, you know, which which was like the big book of that year, like the big vacation mm. book of that year was Hawaii by James Michener, which was so it was an intentional use of it. And I knew, so the wife is a very weird character in mm -hmm. this book. Like, there's there's some shit going on with her, but you don't know what. Um, and as as Dan 
always says to me, like, it's always nice to encounter Wendy in your stories. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I had the exact same thought. <laughs> it's a, such a cool relationship between the two of them. It's very, it's funny. It's a very, like, sort of noir, bantery. It's a good thing. But, yeah. yeah, it's cool. And he's like, <laughs> it's like oh, I hadn't, I hadn't seen your lovely wife in a while. It's nice to see her. So that was good. <laughs> um, so funny. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the use of that book was intentional. And I knew as soon as he found this book and that he when he took it home that his wife was going to be reading it because I want you to have this sense that um like number one that it's weird and that it is in fact a sticky detail like isn't that creepy that she's reading a missing woman's book yeah. it's so personal yeah like yeah. oh god you're like so that begins to open questions in your mind like does she care that this person is missing mm-hmm. is she reading this book because this person is missing is it like, does she not have simple human emotion? Um, did she just need something to read? Um, but I knew that the scene where she was reading the book was going to reveal something larger mm-hmm. about the relationship between Morris and, and his wife, Catherine. Um, and it does. It's a very short scene. You know, it's it's the shortest scene in the story. It's, you know, it's like two paragraphs, basically, and with dialogue. Um, where essentially you realize that his wife knows that he's done some bad shit in his life Mm -hmm. and that she's fine with it. Um, And I'm sort of fascinated by characters like this. You know, there's a character like that in, um, in Dennis Lehane's book, Mystic River, the, the wife of the gangster in Mystic River, essentially at the end of the, at the end of the book and at the end of the movie, the gangster in Mystic River is like, Oh my God, I, I killed the wrong guy. And the wife is like, yeah, you know, accidents happen. And you're like, <laughs> what the fuck? What? And in, in the movie, it's played by Laura Linney, who's great. I love Laura Linney. Um, and so I'm interested in these characters. And of course, I've written characters that spouses of bad people a lot. Like, I've done it I've, constantly. Um, but I like this notion that there's something going on with her, that she would pick up the book and read it, that, that she knows her husband has done some bad things. And that at, at the end of that scene, she essentially says to him, you know, you're not a compendium of, of your worst traits, you know. And th- there's a, um, there's a, I had a little post-it note on my corkboard here for a long time of something that Wendy had, in fact, said to me, um, which was, you know, don't do the thing you always say you won't do. <laughs> and I had that corked up there for a long time, and that played in my head, Um as like oh like that's an emotion that this character should have um and and so i played with that so yeah like those are details that i think of and and then and then use did i know that this book was going to come to play not exactly like i knew he'd find something some evidence of this woman and i needed to have some evidence that this woman was not local Mm -hmm. and so he finds a bookmark inside Mm -hmm. the book that's that shows that she's from chicago Mm -hmm. um and and you know I'd like to say that these are planned out things, but in fact, when you write crime fiction long enough, like you sort of know, okay, this is the scene where he finds something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't plan it, but I knew it was going to be there, if that makes sure. sense. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, publication now that you're in it, now that it's 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 happening. It is happening. What's, uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, you're somebody who you actually read reviews, right? Like you yeah. actually, you dive in. Yeah, Do you yeah. ever, <laughs> so when you read, when you read bad or mixed reviews, um, is there a part of you that's like, 
yeah, they got they were right about some of those things. Or is it always hurt and it's always like, no, 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 they completely missed it. Like, I, I guess I'm just curious about that experience. Um, well, early in my career, I got a lot of bad reviews. Um, I haven't really gotten any bad reviews in about 10 years. <laughs> you got enough at the beginning. Yeah, I, we got some bad reviews for, for the book that Brad and I wrote, uh, The House of Secrets. We got some bad reviews for that. Um, and I, I think the reviews that were a little negative for that book were, were accurate. And I think mm. there's a lot to be gleaned from someone's negative reaction to your work because it's oftentimes highlights the thing that you know is true mm-hmm. um, and that you didn't know how to fix and you just thought that the reader wouldn't ever discover it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a book like The House of Secrets, the book I wrote with, with Brad Meltzer, the negative reviews that we received, and there weren't, it's not like, you know, it's not like there was a ton of them, but there was a few um were essentially um like this doesn't always read like a brad Meltzer book and be like well <laughs> sometimes it isn't at, yeah right. at, at times it's not um and but that that also was like well shit you know brad and i should have been better in that section or you know we mm-hmm. should have done something different here um and so i have some regrets about like oh you know if we do a second book, it'll be better because we know how to do the things that we, that we were we didn't know how to do, you know, originally. Um, and, and I mean, this is I'm not speaking out of school. These are conversations that you know that Brad and I have had together. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I I read all the reviews that come out because I'm interested in in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, mm. But you know, the good reviews also are helpful in a way. Not that it says, like, oh, yes, Todd, you are a fucking genius. Um, <laughs> but, like, there was a review that was in a magazine the other day that, like, it, the, the guy just understood exactly what I was aiming for in every single story. And it's really edifying to be like, oh, my gosh, yeah, like, it he understood the overriding right. philosophy of what to I To just know that there's those readers out there in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, people, that people are probably, a lot of people are probably yeah, reading but, it and just getting what you wanted to get across. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. the, the first goal with any book is to entertain. Like, like that's yeah. my first yeah. goal is to entertain you. Like, I want you to read The Low Desert and come away thinking like, oh, man, that was a kick-ass story. That was fun to read for 25 minutes. Or The Royal Californian, the story that you read first, writer, yeah. where, like, so I want you fun. to get get to the end of that story it's and be so like fun. that story was funny and weird and that dude who wrote it had a fucking great time writing it yeah. which yes. i did right absolutely I, I had a great time <laughs> writing it yeah um, there was never but a moment know, where i was like I think i'm not enjoying this <laughs> but see i think it's worth stating that in fact a lot of writers or at least beginning writers or wannabe writers don't have that attitude yeah they actually don't want to entertain people, you know? And this is something we talked about with George Saunders. You know, it's like, we we all have to remember that that is our, we're part of the entertainment business. Right. Like what we, and if you're not interested in that, if you want to torture your your reader, which I do think some people want to do, whether they're aware of it or not, they want to teach their reader a lesson or explain a philosophy or get a a polemic across, right? Like have some other reason than entertainment, you're always going to fail. Like you have to, like just on a base level, 
get somebody to want to keep turning the pages and to yeah. want to know like, oh, why am I here? I'm enjoying this. Either, even if the enjoyment, and I'm putting enjoyment in air quotes, is the horror of a five-year-old dead body. Right? Right. I mean, that's not enjoyable in a sort of predictable, like in a, I'm laughing out loud, but it is enjoyable in, oh my God, this is awful. I have to keep reading the suspense, the 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 voice, whatever it is that's dry, driving me forward. I just think that that's, that is part of the reason why you are successful is that that you do think like that, and I think it's like a lot of people don't. You know, I, I mean, I've encountered it a lot just with screenwriters. You know, which is even crazier to me because it's like, why do you want to make movies? Like, have you ever watched a movie? Like, right. you have to, somebody has to sit there for two hours or at least an hour and a half and want to stay sitting there. And if you don't want them to be there, like, if you want to like have your cool looking shots or your really smart characters having, you know four hour, you know, five minute monologues that nobody cares about, you're not going to entertain people. Right. Like, that's so basic. But it's really hard, I think, to wrap your head around that sometimes. Well, and, and with the short story as a form, I don't always feel like people write them to entertain you. No. And so, I mean, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about The Neighbors, the story that we read of Shruti Swamis, which was, which was great. We loved that story. And I was saying, like, you know, the reason we put gangster stories on the cover of this book is so that you understand like oh this is going to be some gangster shit yeah you know it's going to be fun there's going to be weird things that happen it's going to be violent like you're not going to pick up this book and be like oh i didn't like it because there someone got shot well what the (laughs) fuck did you expect it's called fucking gangster stories right um which is oftentimes a response i send to people when they say i was surprised in gangsterland when someone was murdered in the first page like (laughs) What the fuck did you think was going to happen? The cover is a guy turning into a fucking gun. Um, (laughs) But, you know, entertainment is uh, is paramount for me. And in these short stories, you know, to write them in such a way that they're fun to read and that there's, um, you know, there's some relief from the unremitting darkness. There's a couple stories throughout the book that are that are funny. Um, There's several stories that are not. And then there's some stories that have sort of a more what I would consider like my gangsterland voice, which is a combination of crime and, and humor at the same time. Um, the, the share of Drew stories are not those. Um, you know, the three stories about him are serious from the first line to the last. Um, but, you know, I think for me as a writer, like I got to be entertained or it's hard for me to to maintain my enthusiasm. And there was, a, to go back to your original question, there was a review. Uh, actually, this was great. I, I don't know how this happened. I was reviewed in the punk rock magazine Razor Cake, which is like <laughs> like, like the dream of my life to be yeah. reviewed in the, a punk rock magazine. And uh, the reviewer said something along the lines of like, I don't know how much of this stuff that he writes is accurate, but I've never read someone having more fun writing it in my entire life. Yeah. Right. And right. I mean, that's just, that's just the truth. I just, you know, I just enjoy doing it. Um, but with this story in particular, with the low desert, I will admit that I had larger social and, um, uh, you know, civil ideas. Like I want to mm-hmm. talk about what we've done to this land. Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. talk about the grift that has happened that has displaced these people. I want to talk about how, we intentionally flooded an ancient salt plain in 1905 for a con job. Like yeah. these are things that are the essence of America. Like this is the essence of the land grab of the West. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, I've written a lot about the Salton Sea over the years. You know, I, I because I don't live too far from it. Um, and this short story and the the pilot that I've uh, that I've written and the conversations I'm having with people that want to buy it. Um, you know, are about you know, like a show that 
can look at organized crime, can look at the 1960s in Palm Springs, the glamour of old Hollywood, the JFK era of, of American right. government, mm-hmm. you know, organized crime, stealing this land and building a Riviera that everyone knew was going to fail and how we let it happen. And that's the why it exists, but that's not the why I'm reading it. Right. Right. That's just I mean, that, in my head. That is a, but that's yeah. a clear distinction. Yeah. I think that gets lost. So it's yeah. like, because that's not the why anybody starts to watch the TV show or read right. the book. No. And it, that's the why it exists. And that's ho- hopefully where they, they end up, right? It's like, oh, they get that sense. Right. But you're sitting down and, and reading it, going page by page for it an entertaining right. reason for other reasons yeah. and then you absorb that na- you know and i think that's just yeah that's really a, a, you know, you know like I, I hope you get to the end of the story and are like i gotta find out about this fucking salt and sea thing this sounds bananas oh yeah yeah i've read a lot oh. of your work about the salt and sea and i'm like a he's obsessed b this is so <laughs> weird <laughs> and see i as an east coast person like i never have heard of this outside of you todd like this is outside my realm of knowledge right so I'm happy that you're uh, so into it. And what I was about to say, too, is like I'm having this weird flashback to like seventh grade when you learn all the parts of a story, <laughs> you know, like plot, character, whatever. And I remember always being like setting, boring. <laughs> but <laughs> by the time you're an adult and like we were talking about um before we started recording super into history and all that stuff like setting is all setting is the soil from which from which everything else grows and it's so neat to hear that you like go so deep on the setting just to you know just to like have it in your bones as you create Mm -hmm. the rest of the pieces of the story yeah i mean that's how i was taught to be perfectly honest with you you know my great mentor um tom filer like he put that in me you know, he really did like character and setting are tethered together mm-hmm. and a character is a different person in a different place mm-hmm. and that we're ruled by the politics of those places. And so throughout this book, but also throughout everything I've written, you'll see I, I move characters around to different settings over and over and over again because part of it is like, a oh, shit, I don't know what, what to say next. I'll put this guy in a diner. Um, (laughs) or I'll put this guy in a car or I'll put this guy in a public place Uh, and conflicts are resolved differently when there's strangers looking at you than they Mm -hmm. are in a closed room Um, and so that plays a big role in it but also I I feel like larger settings like the Salton Sea like the desert like a like a shitty bar on the edge of town um they create their own kind of ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by the, the rules that exist in those ecosystems. Mm. That's great. You know, the, the bartender's in charge of a bar. Like, yeah. you got this felon, and he's in charge of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem smart. <laughs> you got the alcoholic running the, running the joint. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, congratulations, man. Thank um, you. I'm so excited to now read the rest of that read 10 more stories yeah uh, those it's, first those first two are just incredible and if anybody has any doubt go read just buy yeah, this book read the it. first two stories and if you if you don't laugh your ass off at the first story <laughs> and are completely horrified at the same time <laughs> and then get into this one which just rips your heart out like oh it's just it, i'm so excited man i'm so excited thank you i appreciate it, it. Yeah. It's, and i gotta tell you like um i've been hearing from fans of the show who this is their first book of mine that they bought and we can discuss that later at some length um <laughs> 
and it's so nice to hear from you guys and, and to get the, the emails. Um, it, it's really been cool to, uh, to hear you say, oh, like this is the thing that you talked about being unsuccessful in this book. And boy, you really address it differently in your own book. I'm like, <laughs> Very that's cool. right, goddammit. That's right. That's right. Wow. But thank you guys. This was, the, this was awesome. I, I am basically George Saunders now. Yes, you are. That's how it happens. You talk to me and Ryder. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye.